Well, just to step back a little bit, you know, we've been in the book of Ecclesiastes for several weeks now, and of course, we have seen that what this book is, is uh, Solomon's uh, search for the meaning of life. But since in undertaking this task, Solomon was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this book is much more than just his search for the meaning of life. Ultimately, it gives us a divinely inspired philosophy of life, a way of understanding life uh, that is both realistic, and certainly Solomon is that, uh, but also God-centered. And as we've seen, there's no sugarcoating in what Solomon has to say, is there? Uh, instead, he's giving us statements describing the realities of living life in a fallen world. And in this book, Solomon kind of records uh, one observation uh, after another of life as it really is, of the effects of sin on life. Remember, he began by declaring in chapter 1, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, signifying that life is filled with things that are fleeting, things that have no substance, things that are like a vapor that, that vanishes. And as he begins to build his case, he continues in chapter 1 and then into chapter 2, and he points out that life is characterized by monotonous repetition, that there's nothing new under the sun, that when your life ends and you are gone, you won't be remembered for long. Maybe your kids, maybe your grandkids, but not for long. The pursuit of pleasure in all its various forms is empty. We saw that your life's work may go to a fool after you. So everything that you have built, everything you have uh, worked toward, uh, again, can be gone. And we saw that striving in your labors is not worth the pain and stress. So the long and short of it is life in a fallen world has lots of limitations. But this is not a book of pessimism and despair, for it's these very limitations, it's these very things that Solomon has been pointing out. These products of sin are the things that serve to drive us to God. And it's only by looking to the Lord and living by his standards that life takes on real meaning. And so we saw when we got to chapter 3 that Solomon focused his attention on God emphasizing that God is sovereign and he's eternal and he's powerful and he's righteous in his judgments. You may remember that in chapter 3, verse 14, we read this. He says, I know that everything God does will remain forever. That certainly stands in contrast uh, to humans where everything he's just described is, is temporary and vanishes like a vapor. He says, I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it and nothing to take from it, for God has so worked that men should fear him. So again, everything in this world is temporary, it's empty, ultimately unsatisfying. We cannot know life's mysteries. We do not know what the future is going to hold, other than the fact that we're going to die. Now, that's really clear in the book of Ecclesiastes. That's the one thing you can be certain of. But with God, there is permanence and perfect knowledge and sovereign power. Therefore, chapter 3 declares that God has so worked that men should fear him. So in the face of life's limitations, the only, the only appropriate response to make is to fear God, to reverence him and to recognize that he is the one who's in control, and certainly we are not. Well, then last week, as Bo led us through chapter 4, we saw that Solomon once again turned to a series of observations uh, regarding the realities of life under the sun, that is, life viewed from a human perspective. And what he observed was the evil of uh, economic oppression. He presented unbalanced views that people hold of labor and rest. Uh, he talked about uh, human companionship, and then he talked about the uncertainty of politics. Well, now in chapter 5, Solomon turns his attention once more to the Lord. And here he gives us a bit of a preview of the conclusion that he's going to offer at the end of the book in chapter 12. Again, in chapter 3, Solomon affirmed God's loftiness and his sovereign control of all things. But the question is, is it possible to draw near to this God, this all-powerful God, this God who's in control, this God who sets the timing of, of, of everything, everything that happens? Is it possible to draw near to him on a personal level? Well, here in chapter 5, Solomon answers that question with a resounding yes, but he makes it clear that God may only be approached on God's terms, and that's the subject of the first seven verses of chapter 5. 
And then starting in verse 8 and continuing through verse 17, he fixes his gaze once more on uh, life as it is. Uh, He looks at the realities of work and wealth in a fallen world. And then finally, he concludes this chapter by offering the right perspective on work and wealth. That's in verses 18 to 20. And that's a perspective that once again is corrected by uh, looking to the Lord. So, we could state the theme of this chapter like this, that true satisfaction in life never lies in selfish pursuits, but only in the reverence of God, worshiping Him and gratefully receiving what He has given. So that's kind of the the overarching thought that we're going to be considering this morning. So let's begin by exploring Solomon's call to uh, draw near to God on his terms. Well, again, as I mentioned a moment ago, up until now, Solomon has primarily been uh, recording observations of life as it is, observations that demonstrate that life is fleeting and empty and has no meaning apart from God, observations that therefore should serve to drive us to God. Well, now at the opening of chapter 5, for the first time, Solomon presents a series of imperatives. He's been making observations. He's been making comments. But now he begins giving commands for the first time. And it's a series of commands designed to teach us how to approach God, not on our selfish terms, but on God's terms. And so first of all, we are to worship him in spirit and in truth. And you may think, well, wait a minute, that sounds like a New Testament phrase. That sounds like something that Jesus said. And you'd be absolutely right. I'm borrowing Jesus' statement to the woman at the well in John 4, that those who worship God must worship in spirit and in truth. And we're going to find that careful examination of the opening verses of chapter 5 uh, reveal this same pattern. So, look at verse 1. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know they are doing evil. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For the dream comes through much effort and the voice of a fool through many words. So to worship God in spirit is to worship him with your entire being. That's really the the essence of that phrase. It means that worship does not consist simply of of going through uh, external rituals. Uh, They're not rituals to be performed, uh, but it involves the heart and the mind and the will. And therefore, it is essential to prepare your heart and mind before coming to worship. So notice that Solomon's first imperative here is to guard your steps as you go to the house of God. Now, when he uses that phrase, the house of God, of course, he's referring to uh, the the temple. He's referring to to worshipers uh, heading to the temple, that building in which God manifested his glory, and therefore it represented God's uh, presence among his people. So this verse is a call to approach God's presence thoughtfully and reverently while proceeding to the temple. The point is that the worship of God is not something to view casually or flippantly. Years ago, Barb and I visited a a church uh, for the first time. It turned out to be for the last time. Uh, The fellow that that greeted us at the door as we we came to the church, he was talking about the fact that this church has two services. They have an early service and a late service. And his comment to us was, I really like going to the early service because, you know, I can get it out of the way and then I have the rest of my day. Uh, You know, what a flippant attitude toward, toward worship. I mean, clearly uh, an indication that there was no worship taking place in his heart at all. Uh, so here what Solomon tells us is guarding of our steps. There's some food for thought for us. How well do we prepare our hearts and minds for worship before we gather with the body when we come here on a Sunday morning? We are to worship in spirit, that is, with the totality of our being, And this sort of preparation is an important first step. It involves praying. It involves reading the passage that uh, Tom is going to be preaching on, for instance. But what about worshiping in truth? What does that look like? Well, it means we must listen to God and act on his word. Again, verse 1, 
guard your steps as you go to the house of God, and draw near to listen. Draw near to listen. So to worship God is to pay heed to what he has revealed in his word, seeking to understand and to obey. That's certainly the idea here is that it's not just uh, just hearing words, it's also listening with the heart and obeying. And that's certainly at the center of corporate worship at Countryside, and it's uh, certainly the case with all true heart worship. It's only in God's Word that we find the truth. We're to worship in spirit, with our whole being, with our mind, with our will. We're also to worship in truth, and the only place we can find truth is in the Word of God. But notice how verse 1 ends. Again, it says, guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know they are doing evil. So here there's a warning to avoid empty ritual. You know, there's uh, more than one Hebrew word that can be translated sacrifice uh, in English. And the word here that's translated sacrifice refers to the types of sacrifices in which the meat from the animal being offered was eaten as a meal by the person who, who brought that animal for, for sacrifice. So with that thought in mind, also consider this word fool. You know, as we saw throughout the book of Proverbs, the fool is one who has no relationship with God. The fool is one who has no use for God, who, who lives as though God doesn't exist. So with these two thoughts in mind, that the sacrifice involved that's referred to here involved a, a meal, and that this is a person who really has no interest in God. The picture here is of a fool coming to the temple not to worship, but to go through the motions, perhaps to make himself look good in the eyes of others, perhaps just out of habit, or perhaps simply to enjoy the meal. Either way, his heart isn't in it. And the verse categorizes such empty worship as evil done out of ignorance. This is certainly anything but what Jesus referred to as worship in spirit. So again, the point here is clear. To engage in worship activity that is merely external and done out of selfish motives is evil in the sight of God. But not only is it essential to avoid empty ritual under the pretense of true worship, another imperative here is to avoid self-centered, thoughtless prayers. Look at verse 2. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For the dream comes through much effort and the voice of a fool through many words. So the warning here is against displaying impatience with God. Do you ever get impatient with God in your prayers? I suspect at one time or another all of us have been guilty of that. You know, perhaps it comes in the form of complaints or requests that really are selfish demands couched in prayer language. You know, this is kind of a, Lord, here's what I need from you uh, kind of praying. And the corrective to this wrong-headed approach to prayer is given at the end of verse 2. It says, do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. Why? Well, it goes on to say, for God is in heaven and you are on the earth. Well, what's that have to do with anything? <laughs> well, the point here is that when we draw near to God in prayer, it's to be in humility, recognizing God's greatness, God's glory, God's majesty, and recognizing how small and insignificant we are, uh, especially in the light of, of his presence. You know, that's, that's really the idea here, is remembering that God is in heaven and we are not. We are earthbound. We're small and we are weak. You know, in teaching his disciples how to pray, think about how Jesus taught them to acknowledge God's greatness before making any petitions. The Lord's Prayer opens with this in Matthew chapter 6. Jesus said, pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus taught us that when we pray, we're to focus on, on God, not on us and our problems and our issues, 
we're to focus on him as we come into our presence, recognizing his greatness. Well, here in our passage, verse 2 continues, God is in heaven and you are on the earth, therefore let your words be few. So this is a call to be thoughtful in prayer, not rash and impulsive and wordy. Again, we're reminded of the words of Jesus. This also from Matthew 6. When you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. But what might cause someone to be impatient in prayer? Well, verse 3 offers an answer. Again, look at verse 3. For the dream comes through much effort and the voice of a fool through many words. This isn't the, the easiest verse to understand. <laughs> but that phrase, much effort, it carries the idea of one who is pursuing a dream through toiling and striving and working at many tasks. This is the person who's, who's just busy, busy, busy working toward their dream. The Legacy Standard Bible translates verse 3 like this, and I think this is helpful. For the dream comes through abundant endeavor and the voice of the fool through abundant words. And so this verse gives a picture of frantic activity and endless talk, which are incompatible with prayer. Commentator Michael Eaton explains the point of the verse this way. He says, heavy responsibility is apt to hinder concentration and lead to impatience in prayer. The fool will consequently pour out a flood of words, but this is no remedy. The need for care in prayer cannot be set aside. So the point is, the Lord desires humility and thoughtfulness from those who draw near to him in prayer, not a barrage of words. So we're to quiet our hearts. We're to reflect on who God is. As Psalm 46 verse 10 puts it, cease striving and know that I am God. So drawing near to God involves quieting our hearts, recognizing who he is, being thoughtful as we come to him uh, in prayer. Cease striving and know that I am God. But the worship of God involves more than corporate worship or worship in prayer. It also involves living in a way that honors the Lord. And so in verses 4 through 7, there's a call here to worship him in the integrity of your words. The specific context here has to do with the practice in Israel of making vows to God and the necessity of then keeping those vows. You know, that isn't something that we necessarily do or even really really think about. Um, but the point is clear here in, in this passage that uh, we are to keep our commitments. Again, look at verse 4. When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it. For he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. So a vow to God was simply a promise made to God. And it is referred to uh, in the Old Testament law. We'll look at that in just a second. But such a vow could be made for a variety of reasons. Again, to draw from Michael Eaton, he explains it this way. The vow in ancient Israel was a promise to God which might be a part of prayer for blessing or a spontaneous expression of gratitude. It might take the form of a promise of allegiance. It might be a free will offering or the dedication of a child as a Nazarite. Well, the likely scenario that is in view here in Ecclesiastes is that of someone who is in a, in a tough situation, uh, making some form of, of commitment to God in exchange for God's deliverance. The formula might be something like, Lord, I promise to, and you fill in the blank, if you will just, and then fill in the blank again. It's that kind of prayer that uh, perhaps uh, you, like me, prayed as, as a child. You know, Lord, please help me pass this test, and if I, if I pass this test, then I will do whatever. Um, you know, that kind of prayer uh, is obviously not, uh, the kind of prayer that God desires. But that's the, the, the sort of image that we have here uh, in this passage. 
So the issue is this, although the law of God made it clear that making a vow was completely voluntary, this was not something that was required of the people of Israel, but the law also required that once a vow was made, it had to be kept and kept without delay. Listen to these words from Deuteronomy chapter 23. It says this, when you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it. For it would be sin in you, and the Lord your God will surely require it of you. However, if you refrain from vowing, it would not be sin in you. You shall be careful to perform what goes out from your lips, just as you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised. Again, you catch that word. It's a voluntary vow uh, to God. So again, look at verses 4 and 5. Let me reread them again. When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it. Why? For he takes no delight in fools. So the implication of someone who makes a vow to God and then is delaying the payment or is not following through at all, they're a fool. He says, pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. So to make a promise to God and then break it is to take on the character of the fool so the point here is very clear. If you make a promise, keep it. And if there's any doubt in your mind about keeping your word, then don't make the promise. <laughs> it's, it's not complicated. The application for us then is simple. The Lord requires us to be true to our word. You know, in his teaching on the subject of vows, Jesus concluded uh, his comments by saying this, let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is evil. It's a form of, of lying, and we're not to do that, obviously. Well, verse 6 takes the matter of lying in integrity, excuse me, the matter of living in integrity a step farther, uh, teaching that if you fail to do your uh, promise, fail to keep what you've uh, committed to do, you do not want to rationalize your failure. Look at verse 6. Do not let your speech cause you to sin, and do not say in the presence of the messenger of God, that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the work of your hands? So this verse is a clear warning about failing to act with integrity. How can your speech cause you to sin, as it says here in verse 6? How about by making a promise in haste and then failing to keep it? But notice that there's also a danger here of a second sin. If after you fail to keep your commitment, you then try to rationalize that failure with a lame excuse, and you say, ah, it, it was just a mistake. You know, I, I didn't mean to, to say that. Uh, you are compounding the problem. It's just adding sin on top of sin. Commentators agree that the, the, the word messenger here in verse 6 it's probably a reference either to a priest to whom a vow was made or it could be a messenger sent by a priest to inquire why the vow wasn't fulfilled. So what's the likely result of such careless speech? What's going to happen to the one who has made this vow, made this promise, made this commitment and doesn't uh, fulfill it? And then when somebody comes to inquire about it, they say, ah, they kind of give a lame excuse. It was a mistake. I, I didn't mean that. I didn't mean to say that. What's going to happen? Verse 6. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the work of your hands? So this kind of attitude, this, this kind of, of, of action, and this kind of making excuses uh, is likely to uh, arouse the anger of God, bringing his discipline, and there's even a reference here to, to material loss, uh, that can occur. So this is a, a serious matter. <laughs> we need to live with integrity. We need to do what we say we're going to do. Verse 7 is basically a repeat of the warning in verse 3, uh, but with the addition of a, a solution. We must fear God. Look at verse 7. For in many dreams and in many words, there is emptiness. Literally, there's, there's vanity. Rather, fear God. So both the busy pursuit of self-centered dreams, that activity, that frantic uh, action, 
and the careless, endless speech accomplish nothing. Rather, we must fear God. We must have reverence for God. But how is living in the reverence of God to be accomplished? Well, here's kind of a review of, of what we've seen. The fear of God can be exercised by preparing our hearts and minds when we gather for worship, by drawing near to the Lord to listen, being careful to obey. We need to heed his word. By avoiding worship that's merely external and not from the heart. By appro approaching the Lord in humility and being thoughtful in our prayers. By guarding our tongues, being cautious with our commitments. By being careful to keep the commitments we make. And then by being honest if we fail instead of offering lame excuses. So this is what it looks like to draw near to God on his terms. Well, next, having provided this wise counsel through a series of commands in verses 1 through 7, Solomon returns to his observations on life as it really is, as life that's been corrupted by sin. And specifically in verses 8 to 17, he points to the limitations of work and wealth in a fallen world. So he begins by cautioning that oppression and injustice should come as no surprise. Look at verse 8. If you see oppression of the poor and denial of justice and righteousness in the province, do not be shocked at the sight. For one official watches over another official, and there are high, higher officials over them. After all, a king who cultivates the field is an advantage to the land. Well, these days, there's certainly many people in the public spotlight who are bantering at great length about those who are oppressed and those who are oppressors. And such talk actually becomes wearisome after a while. But verse 8, you'll notice it points to the reality of the economic oppression of the poor. And certainly it reminds us that this is nothing new. And the verse also paints a picture of government bureaucracy compounding the problem by denying justice and failing to make things right. Uh, for those who have been mistreated. You know, the image here is of a low-level bureaucrat denying justice to the poor. Perhaps you can kind of picture that, of, of, of somebody that is uh, in, a, in a bad situation. They're being abused by those that perhaps are, are wealthy, uh, and they go to a government official for help, and instead all they receive is injustice. And then that bureaucrat is being supported in his decisions by the officials that are over him. And those bureaucrats at that level are supported by the officials over them. And so it's just kind of a, a picture of uh, a corrupt system. Wednesday night, Barb and I had the chance to learn of Jenna and Crescendo's uh, mission experiences in Dominican Republic. And the ministry that they're working with is in the process of uh, constructing a new building. At least they've made plans to construct a new building but it hasn't begun yet. The work hasn't started yet. The reason is they're having trouble getting uh, government permits. And so we had a chance to ask them, well, so why would the government be dragging their feet when this center is something that clearly would be beneficial to the community? And, and their response was, well, it, it, it's not that they have any interest in uh, benefiting the community. It's not for the people's benefit. What they're hoping for is personal benefit in the form of, of bribes, that that's kind of how the system works. Well, obviously, that's not going to happen in this, in this situation. Um, but what Solomon is saying here is this is life as it is. This, this is reality, and don't let it surprise you. Don't let it shock you. So verse 8 serves as a reminder that oppression of the poor is nothing new, and neither is governmental indifference and corruption. When you, when you get to verse 9, let me read verse 9 again. It says, after all, a king who cultivates the field is an advantage to the land. Uh, that's a verse that's challenging to translate, and there's a number of different ways that it can be translated, but um, most commentators that I checked agree that the NASB got it right in what they've expressed here. And the idea here is that in spite of the failures and limitations of government that he's just described in verse 8, Ultimately, it's an advantage to have an authority at the top who is uh, promoting the cultivation of the land. 
It's sort of the idea that, uh, yeah, government's not perfect, but it's a good thing to have have a king who is, is supporting agriculture. It's beneficial to the land. But regarding issues of work and wealth in a fallen world, the point to be made here is that economic disparity and unjust treatment of the poor are commonplace and should come as no surprise. Furthermore, the pursuit of wealth is useless. Look at verse 10. Even before, let me make a comment here. You know, how common it is in our culture for people to build their lives around the pursuit of the dollar? You've, I'm sure, seen that happening. Perhaps you have family members that uh, kind of operate in that mode. You know, but the love of money, the desire for wealth, it's, it's really an empty goal. And notice how the words uh, of the next three verses really serve to burst that wealth bubble. Look at what he says in verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money nor he who loves abundance with its income. This, too, is vanity. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what is the advantage to their owners except to look on? The sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. So he starts with the point that uh, it will never satisfy money Wealth will never satisfy. Again, verse 10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. You know, this phrase kind of brings to mind uh, uh, the expression that, that we hear from time to time, that the, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. That's sort of the idea here. And in the ancient Near East, having an abundance of livestock, which would be a mark of a wealthy person, led to owning more livestock as they reproduced. And in our time, we tend to find that people that have really large investments uh, are usually able to get a higher return on their investments. You know, the kind of the more you have, the more you're, you're able to gain. And the picture here is of one loving money and cherishing the sight of that money, earning more money and growing. Um, but as Solomon points out here, it will never serve to make life satisfying. And in verse 11, he explains one reason why. Money won't satisfy because it will disappear. When good things increase, those who consume, excuse me, those who consume them increase. So what is the advantage to their owners except to look on? Do you get the picture? When good things increase, that is when wealth is accumulating, who's going to show up? probably going to find relatives and friends that you never knew you had. <laughs> uh, you know, the people are going to be looking for a handout. That's what happens. And in our culture, when wealth increases, who else shows up? An organ yeah, the IRS, exactly. <laughs> I was going to say an organization with uh, initials IRS. When you have money, there will be no lack of people ready to take it off your hands. And over time, it will disappear. It isn't going to last. But even while you have it, it isn't satisfying. And in fact, it brings displeasure. Look at verse 12. The sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much. But the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. So the working man portrayed here is simply the typical middle-income uh, citizen. And what's life like for him? Pretty good, basically uh, worry-free. Some days may be more productive than others, but troubles don't keep him awake at night. How about the rich man? Life isn't so good for him, is it? You know, one way of understanding this verse is that the rich man's uh, overindulgence keeps him awake. He's eating too much, and it keeps him awake. Do you ever eat too much too late in the evening, and it doesn't sit well, <laughs> you can't sleep? Um, so that's uh, in a case of, you know, rather than bringing comfort, his riches result in discomfort. So that's one possibility of, of what this verse is saying. But another view of this verse, and perhaps the more likely one, uh, is that he can't sleep because of the worry that comes with having great wealth. Uh, that's also a perfectly uh, valid uh, interpretation of this verse. 
So worry about investments going bad, worry about thieves breaking in, uh, worry about someone who stands to inherit the fortune who might tend to shorten your lifespan. Um, worry about any number of things uh, tends to be characteristic of someone who has great wealth. So the point is that rather than bringing peace and satisfaction, the pursuit of wealth uh, tends to bring displeasure and anxiety. You know, in the next three verses, Solomon's gaze is not so much on the pursuit of wealth as it is on the effort to hold on to wealth that's already been acquired. So here we discover that the attempt to cling to wealth is futile. Well, as we learned from the illustration of the ant, you remember that back in, in Proverbs chapter 6? That was a while back. Remember, the, the ant is kind of held up as a model to us that, you know, the ant uh, knows to save for the winter, to set things aside for, for the winter. And, the, you know, the idea there is that uh, we're to follow the, the example of the ant and uh, prepare for the future, uh, set something aside for the future. Well, here we find that placing our trust in our bank account or investments is foolish indeed. It's a different perspective uh, that, you know, here just latching on to that bank account, that insurance policy, whatever it might be, uh, is foolish indeed. And that's because it is no source of real security. Verse 13, there is a grievous evil which I have seen under the sun, riches being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. When those riches were lost through a bad investment and he had fathered a son, then there was nothing to support him. So wealth can be used in two ways. You know, it can be viewed as a blessing of God that is given to us and meant to be shared with others, to benefit others, or it can be held to selfishly uh, try to guarantee comfort in the future. So Solomon refers to the second approach as a grievous evil. Another way I guess we could think of that phrase is it's a sad state of affairs. Why? Well, that's because there's no guarantee that wealth will bring security. For some reason, uh, the wording chosen in the New American Standard uh, implies that the loss will come through a bad investment. It says... When those riches were lost through a bad investment. Uh, the Hebrew phrase there is really much broader than that, and it would include any sort of misfortune resulting in loss. So it could be, it could be crop failure, it could be uh, a natural disaster, or it could be a, a bad investment, just anything uh, that uh, results in major loss. And so verse 14 paints the portrait of a man clinging tightly to his wealth, uh, holding on to that supposed security, who then had a son, but then some form of calamity struck, and he had no way to support his son. So the point is, wealth is not a source of security because we never know what the future is going to hold. Only God does. Jesus said, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's a call to, to draw near to God and not to cling on to uh, the material things because there's no security at all in them. The only security to be found is in, is in God. But not only is wealth uh, no dependable source of security in this life, in addition, it has no eternal value. Look at verse 15. As he had come naked from his mother's womb, so will he return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Exactly as a man is born, thus will he die. So what is the advantage to him who toils for the wind? You know, we often uh, express the same point with that familiar phrase, well, you can't take it with you. And that's really the idea here. Um, I worked for Owens Corning for 39 years, and during the time period that, that I worked, uh, it became less and less common for American workers to stay with one company until retirement. And so during the course of my career, what Owens Corning did was uh, they modified the benefits 
uh, structure, the benefits package. And uh, the idea was to make them portable, which we kind of interpreted as, well, that means they, <laughs> they're looking to get rid of us. Uh, but the idea was that uh, if you left the company and, and pursued a career elsewhere, or if you were laid off, uh, and you had money invested, let's say, in a retirement fund, uh, you could take it with you. So humanly speaking, that's an advantage in this life. But the idea here is that when the Lord calls us to that final career change, when we depart from this life, uh, verses 15 and 16 make it clear that there are no material benefits that we can take with us. So to strive after material things in this world, you know, to devote time and energy uh, to those things, we're investing in things which we cannot keep. And that's why Solomon refers to it as striving after wind. Furthermore, when it comes to wealth, it produces only misery and trouble. Look at verse 17. Throughout his life, again, this is talking about the one who's hoarding his riches. Throughout his life, he also eats in darkness with great vexation, sickness, and anger. So here's the end result for the man hoarding his wealth that was referred to in verse 13. His striving to hold on to his riches only resulted in a life of gloom and of frustration, of physical sickness and anger over his failed ambitions. It's, it's really a pathetic picture, isn't it? Yeah, Brian. It does, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. I know Bo, Bo made reference last week to Ebenezer Scrooge, and he's exactly right. That's, that's the picture. So, you know, keep in mind, though, that Solomon is not offering uh, the view of life of a dour pessimist. That's, that's not his intent here. His purpose is to expose these realities of life in a fa fallen world so that we will draw close to God. We will be driven to God. If we try to find meaning in all of these other things, it, we just uh, come up empty. But the point is to lead us to God. And when we do that, when we draw near to God in reverent worship and prayer, pursuing a life of integrity, as we saw in the early part of the chapter, then we find ourselves holding the right perspective on work and wealth. So chapter 5 comes to a close as Solomon turns from what amounts to a godless perspective on work and wealth to a viewpoint based on God's sovereign power and His grace. Having called us to draw near to God in verse 1, Solomon now shows us the transformation a reverent attitude toward God makes in our perspective on work and wealth. He begins by making a call to enjoy the fruit of your work as a gift from God. Look at verse 18. Here is what I have seen to be good and fitting. So now we're going to look at the positive side. To eat to drink and enjoy oneself in all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life. Again, reminder, death's coming. In which God has given him, for this is his reward. You know, as we read this, this verse might have a familiar ring to it. Uh, it it's a, a repeat of what he had already said in chapter 2, verse 24, and in chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. His point is that life is brief and God intends it to be enjoyed. Well, how? Well, by realizing that it is work itself, not the absence of work that brings enjoyment. You know, how often we think, oh, if I just didn't have to work anymore, life would be good. <laughs> well, the reality is God has given us work, and it's through that work that we find uh, enjoyment when we're pursuing that which we has, he has uh, given us, has designed us to do. And the fruit of that work enables us to enjoy good food and drink with family and friends. And this is the picture of a joyful and satisfying life. But more than that, we are to recognize that wealth is a gift of God, as is the ability to rejoice in the fruit of your labor. So wealth itself is a gift of God. Look at verse 19. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. So is it only the people who are driven by the love of money and who toil and strive to acquire it 
and to hold on to it uh, who become wealthy? Verse makes it clear, not at all. Verse 19 uh, tells us that God freely gives riches and wealth to some as a blessing. And does wealth always lead to the misery that we saw in verses 10 through 17? Again, the answer is no. For not only is God able to bestow wealth, he also bestows the power to enjoy wealth. That's interesting, isn't it? Is that God may bless you with wealth, and it is God who is able to give the ability to enjoy that wealth, to find it uh, to be pleasurable. In verses 10 through 17, if you look back at those verses, you'll notice that there was no mention of God whatsoever, only the love of money and the hoarding of money. You know, we're kind of reminded of uh, John D. Rockefeller when asked, uh, uh, you know, what his thoughts were on money. How, how much money do you, do you need? And his comment was, one more dollar. <laughs> you know, it's, it's that kind of empty pursuit of, uh, I want more, I want more, I want more. So that's the, the, the attitude that you find in verses 10 through 17. And the result is anything but good. But now in verse 19, there is mention of labor and wealth once again. But here it's accompanied by, by eating and rejoicing in that labor. Why? Because the man described here understands that these blessings are the gift of God and he enjoys them as such. So whatever our situation, we need to recognize that everything we have is a gift from our gracious God. But Solomon has more to say about the man of verse 19 who has received blessings. His life will demonstrate that a life of faith is a life of joy. Look at verse 20. For he, that is this man who has been uh, blessed with riches and wealth and blessed with the ability to uh, receive them as a uh, reward and to rejoice in them as a gift. For he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. What a cheerful outlook on life it is to have God keeping you occupied with gladness in your heart. Again, to draw from Michael Eaton, he writes this. He says, secular man may live a life of drudgery, but for the God-centered man, it will be otherwise. Life will be so occupied with jubilation that the vanity of life will be well-nigh forgotten. You know, that's sort of the idea of this verse is that when we recognize that life is a gift and everything that we have is a gift from God, a gift from a gracious, loving God, it, it just changes our outlook on, on everything. And we no longer find ourselves just focused on the vanity of life, on the limitations of life because of sin. That isn't to say that the limitations of living in a fallen world won't be apparent, but as we continually draw near to God, relying on Him and viewing life as His gracious gift, the impact of those limitations becomes smaller and smaller and smaller. So, there's chapter 5. <laughs> So what are, what are some implications uh, that we can reflect on in this chapter? So let's, let's consider just a few. This is a short list. First of all, we must draw near to God through Jesus alone. Obviously, uh, Solomon is writing at a, at a time where he's, he's not addressing the issue of Messiah coming and of God's, of God's great promise. Uh, we have the advantage of looking from a New Testament perspective. So certainly Solomon has offered a strong case here for the necessity and the undeniable benefit of drawing near to God. Well, in the New Testament, the writer of Hebrews explains that it is only through Jesus acting as our great high priest that we are able to draw near to God in repentance and faith because Jesus offered himself as the perfect sacrifice to make payment for our sins, and he now intercedes for us. Listen to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. It reads like this. Therefore, Jesus is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. You know, the point here is that if you have never really cried out to God in repentance and faith, let today be the day. Jesus is the way that we draw near to God. Secondly, we see here that our worship matters. 
We're called to worship in spirit, that is, staying focused with, with our minds and uh, just being prepared to obey. And in truth, listening to what God says, again, being willing to obey what he has told us. And we are also to worship with our lives by living in integrity, guarding our tongues, being careful with what we, what we promise, what we commit to, being faithful to, uh, to uh, stick to those promises and commitments. Our worship matters. Thirdly, living in the fear of the Lord, that is, in reverence and obedience, enables us to see work and its rewards from the right perspective, for they are a gift from God. It's so easy for us to complain about our jobs and to see it as drudgery and all that, but but the reality is (laughs) what God has given us uh, as our, our work to do is a gift from him, and it's to be celebrated. We're to rejoice in it. And then finally, life has its limitations because of the effects of sin. Nevertheless, life itself is a gift to be enjoyed. True satisfaction then comes only from drawing near to the giver of life. So let's turn to him in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for this chapter. We thank you for the uh, reminder here of the necessity of uh, guarding our steps as we approach you, of uh, listening to you, uh, listening with obedient hearts. Uh, Father, I pray that you would uh, just work in each of our hearts, each of our lives uh, in, in such a way that we would be very mindful of who you are, of, of your greatness and of our smallness. Uh, that we would approach you in in humility and uh, recognize that uh, what you have given us in terms of work, in terms of wealth, in terms of all things, uh, ultimately is a gift from your hand. And in that, we rejoice and we are grateful. So, Father, we recognize that this life is just filled with limitations uh, because of sin. Uh, And yet, uh, we are able to overcome those limitations just uh, in the knowledge that Uh, You love us. You have provided for us, and you have provided for us in an ultimate sense through sending Jesus uh, to die for us uh, so that we indeed can draw near you. And so, Father, I pray that you would just be uh, growing us in our relationship with you day by day, uh, that we would become more and more conformed to the image of your Son. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.